If you are working against a system that for 100 plus years has built a negative about you, there's a lot of catching up to do in terms of um, strength building. But also, you know, when you feel a sense of belonging in your heart, you bring that energy with you everywhere. There, I talk about affective resonance. So affective resonance means when I feel like I belong at the Sikh Heritage Museum, that aura, I walk around with me everywhere. And nobody can suck that away from me. Nobody can take that away from me, no matter how much negativity I may face. Based out of the University of the Fraser Valley on unceded traditional lands of the Stolo people, we are the Community Health and Social Innovation Hub, or CHASI for short. We support the social, mental, emotional, physical, and economic health of those living in our communities by bringing together experts from across disciplines. Those experts have some incredible stories and insights. To share those with the communities we serve, we bring you the Chassis Cast, a monthly program where we drill down on a current topic and chat about how it impacts our lives. Good morning. Welcome to Chassis Cast, and it's our uh, pleasure this morning to have uh, Dr. Sharon Sandra, and congratulations on your recent PhD. Thank you. Yeah, and welcome. And for those of you who don't know, um, Sharon is the coordinator of UFE's South Asian Studies Institute and have been there for over 10 years. Uh, you're the co-curator at the Sikh Heritage Museum, co-chair of UFE's uh, RAN, mm -hmm. uh, instructor in the history department, and I hear great things uh, from your students. Uh, and as I just said, recently earned your PhD uh, from UBC. Um, so really looking forward to this conversation. I feel really privileged and it's kind of selfish time to me, uh, to be <laughs> for me, to be honest, because I get to sit with people that I uh, have a great deal of respect for. So um, let's start there. You recently completed your PhD uh, with your dissertation on museums as spaces of belonging um, and wondered uh, if you could talk a little bit about that. And in particular, we just had Sikh Heritage Month yeah. uh, conclude. So maybe we can start there. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words as well. Um, you know, it's interesting, my dissertation didn't begin looking at museums. Um, I kind of was wishy-washy about what it was I was going to do. I looked at looking at um, poetics of oral history, for example, at one point. But something happened during the course of my studies where um, I felt like I didn't belong in the Department of History at UBC. And that was because I was the first uh, sick woman and, and mother and, and um, uh, an older student at that point. I was 30 years old when I began my PhD. So I felt very much out of place. Everybody around me was much younger. Um, they were mostly cishet white men around me at UBC then eight years ago. I felt like I didn't belong. And in fact, you know, one of my instructors called me into his office one day and said, you know, maybe you don't belong in this department and maybe you should do a master's. And I was like, but I already have a master's. And I was so confused in that moment. So I thought about quitting the program. And luckily, I had a supervisor who understood the nuances um, as a fierce anti-racist himself, Dr. Henry Yu, um, who supported me along that process. And so what happened was, during the course of not feeling like I belonged, I found belonging through my work at the Sikh Heritage Museum. And so for more than 10 years, Sutunder and I have been co-curating and co-managing that space. And when I was giving tours in that space, when I was uh, co-curating exhibits, something shifted in terms of my confidence uh, something shifted in terms of my understanding of my communities, how to build bridges, but also how to challenge. I didn't feel that at UBC up until that point. And that slowly led to me realizing, you know what, I should do my dissertation on museums as spaces of belonging because the Sikh Heritage Museum is a different model than a lot of those colonial institutions that we see um, as being the traditional museum model. 
And so that's how it came to be, where I decided, let's look at museums as spaces of belonging. And I look at three different Asian Canadian communities. And what I love about that is that I'm not just looking at the Sikh community. I'm looking at Chinese Canadian communities and Japanese Canadian communities to see what are the differences, what are the similarities, and how can we build solidarities. This month is also Asian Heritage Month, right? So there is a lot of conversations around anti-Asian racism, but also like you mentioned last month, April was Sikh Heritage Month as well. So there's all these great opportunities to build in these conversations around Asian heritage and South Asian histories. And so I think it's perfect timing that the, my dissertation is coming out when it is. I'm so interested in this idea of belonging. And um, I think so many people talk about belonging as natural, as easy. Yeah. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the work mm. of finding spaces of belonging. Yeah. I'm always in awe, to be really honest, of the energy you bring. <laughs> but I also always, you know, the exhaustion that yeah. comes with that. So I wonder if you yeah. could talk about the, the work of belonging. Yeah, you know, when we look through a lens of belonging now there's different forms of belonging my lens and experience is looking at it through a critical race theory lens right so i'm looking at belonging in terms of systems that have always excluded through race systems that have always excluded through um you know making uh whiteness the center and so when i walk around buildings when i look at things that is the lens that i'm interpreting through with but also historically, so for example, the museum. As a project, the museum was based on a collection of um, indigenous artifacts, stolen artifacts based on genocide, but also artifacts based on like African slavery. That is the foundation of the museum. They were called cabinets of curiosities. They stuffed these cabinets with everything you could imagine, stolen, based on harm, violence, genocide. That's the museum project. And we have this presumption about the innocence of the museum when we walk into a museum because historically we haven't interpreted those centuries of history. I interpret those centuries of history to the very moment I walk into a museum to say, okay, how is this museum different? How is it the same? Who is working in this museum? Who is writing the story panels? Who is curating the exhibits? I have a problem still where majority of museums are run by through whiteness. Right? When you're writing stories about other communities who are not from your own, there is always going to be a difference. And I think that's where the rub is right now, and that's where the resistance is. Where communities are saying, let us write our own stories. Don't just pay us an honorarium, or for some, don't even, they don't even give honorariums. Don't make us honorary board members. No, no, no. We want to be inside the fabric of your institution. The other thing that's interesting with like histories of museum in, let's say, British Columbia, for example, they're also based on white pioneer settler histories. And so what's happened is a lot of powerful families, for example, in Abbotsford, the Tuthui family, right? They have this power system in our city. And a lot of them are like the board members. They, they have this kind of patronage in the museums. Well, guess what the majority of the stories are going to be then? Guess what the majority of the emphasis is going to be? You have to disband those kind of hundreds of years worth of patronage and say, we need to find other people to build in our board structures. So that is the way I look at museums as spaces of belonging. It is always through a, a lens of anti-racism. Even in my children's school, we talk about our kids' schools all the time. When I walk into my child's school, there's a massive portrait of Queen Elizabeth. There's a massive portrait about an anti-gang message. From a lens of anti-racism, I sit back and I say, that's problematic. What does Queen Elizabeth have anything to do with my child's education? In fact, it's antithetical to the educational process because you're teaching a child that colonialism is acceptable. Mm -hmm. You're not asking them to critique colonialism. With the gang message, 
you're telling them you're walking into this building, you're going to be a gang member. That's a lens of anti-racism that I look at. And, you know, when I hear stories from my students about being surveillanced by the police at a cactus club restaurant, you know, white waitresses will tell me, Sharn, like, uh, the group of brown men are sitting here just enjoying their dinner and a bunch of police come and start, like, harassing them. I'm My eyes are open to, like, the forms of harassment that exist in the city alone. So that is what belonging is to me. How do we foster that belonging from a lens of positivity? We're always working from a model of a deficit, Martha. Mm-hmm. Everything is always just, you know, what is wrong? Let's fix the wrong. My ideology is, can we work from a place of positivity? Can we work from a place of what people bring into a space and highlight that rather than this deficit model? And you can use that model anywhere, not just museums, institutions like UFE too. That's a long answer. <laughs> no, yeah, can, no, it's great. Can you talk a bit about that, mostly so that you can solve it for me? Um, but can you talk about this balance of deficit and strengths, right? Because yeah. you've got the tension to say, yeah. if we, you know, stay on the strength side too much, we don't want to, you know, uh, make invisible yeah. the real challenges. Sure. And yet, absolutely, we don't want to just stay here. Can yeah. you talk about how, how do we navigate that? I think we are in a place of having to catch up against all of the deficits that have been thrown against racialized bodies. And it, and for me, June of 2020 was this moment of catching up, this calls to action of let's catch up to the fact that for so long, it's always been a model of deficit, of less than, of proving ourselves, of model minority, of all these kind of forms that we have to, to um, defend our positionality. So 100%, we don't want to over-nostalgize. We don't want to make it where it's only a good so you can't work on the negativities. But I feel like if we play catch up first, that too will slowly happen. If you are working against a system that for 100 plus years has built a negative about you, there's a lot of catching up to do in terms of um, strength building. But also, you know, when you feel a sense of belonging in your heart, you bring that energy with you everywhere. There, I talk about affective resonance. So affective resonance means when I feel like I belong at the Sikh Heritage Museum, that aura I walk around with me everywhere and nobody can suck that away from me. Nobody can take that away from me, no matter how much negativity I may face. That's really powerful, Martha. That's so powerful to feel like I do belong here. You can't take that away from me. And it's a a challenge Mm -hmm. to whiteness. It's a challenge to white supremacy in in the perspective I'm talking about belonging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What does that look like in your classrooms? Oh, I teach from... um, a very inclusive lens. I teach from an emotional lens. I teach in a way that is mindful of every single student's lived experience in my classroom. I may not know all their stories. They don't even have to share with me, nor should they have to share with me. But the moment a student walks into my classroom, I understand they have complexity in their life. And I respect that complexity. They may have children. They may um, uh, be of a different class. They may have different Um, you know, um, complexities in their life. If you begin with that foundation, you you move forward in empathy. I feel like we are um, institutionally really caged in to work on assessment and work on um, output-based. I think you can find a balance by first finding empathy and compassion and then building upward. And I think for the most part, my students value that. And it's a mutual respect. It's not a hierarchy. I'm not better than them. In fact, I learn from my students just as much. I also learn that they 
they don't always respond to um, dense articles, dense um, academic writing. Hell, I don't even respond to dense academic writing. Mm -hmm. Half the time, the stuff I'm reading, I don't understand. And I think that's powerful because we have to position ourselves to say academics is also fluid. So let's teach in a way that's fluid in our classroom. So I think my students respond. Now there is resistance. I was looking at my, um, rate my professor ratings and I can't help but do that. I know we're told not to, <laughs> but I can't help but do it. And somebody posted a comment saying, you know, all she does is teach through a lens of hate. And I was like, that's so interesting because that's the exact opposite of what I'm trying to do. But to some, when I'm teaching, you know, the challenge of systems that they've always been used to, it may look like hate. Right. Um, but that is not what I'm trying to do. And but when I get my responses from my class reviews, knock, knock on wood, they've all been amazing. And that fills my cup. I have no doubt. Um, <laughs> I wondered, though, as you know, I wonder if some of that response to you and how you teach and others teach um, has to do with us being really comfortable with sort of diversity workshops and kind of really mm -hmm. soft, you know, what ticking boxes, whether it's in universities yeah. or policing or wherever it is. Yeah. Um, but can you talk just a little bit about that balance, you know, sort mm -hmm. of that that need for more aggressive sort of stances yeah. and and then that diversity sort of approach? It is a very difficult um, balance to strike. I think when I'm looking at it from a position of power, that's where I try to challenge um, and teach my students to challenge. So for example, if I'm talking about um, race and anti-racism, I try to teach them how power works within that situation. Who has power? Why do they have power? What is that power built upon, right? And get them to understand, oh, wow, we've never noticed that this is kind of a huge disparity. How do we challenge those systems? Um, so if I position everything back to power, they kind of understand. But if I just make it a, um, uh, pardon the pun, like a black and white issue, it's not going to work. In fact, what I tell them is there is no black and white. It's gray. There's complexity and grayness. In our classes, we've been having huge debates about the truckers' convoy. There are students who believe firmly it began as a protest against, uh, in, in labor solidarity, in class. There are students who are like, hell no, it's always been this. I allow those complex conversations to take place in my classroom, but I do it in a way that doesn't put down each of the viewpoints. Um, but there have been moments where I had to say, okay, we're going to have to stop because things are getting heated. And I'm still, as a young, fairly, I've only been teaching for three years, three, four years. I'm also still learning how to work through that because I've got my own opinions too. And if you're on my social media, you know I've got my own opinions. But I don't ever let that enter the classroom. I try to keep nuance while at the same time always bringing us back to power, power, power. I feel like students understand that when you bring it back to power. Um, not always, but sometimes. I'd love, maybe we'll do this over a glass of wine, but I'd love to talk more about these ideas about how we navigate, you know, space, voice, silence in the classroom so that positions that we seem contrary and are problematic, we don't find too much space for. And I think that's interesting. But yes, no, you go. But yeah. you know what's been really interesting? Teaching on Zoom uh -huh. and having students private chat me or mm. it's, it's actually open up those students who aren't comfortable speaking in the classroom, and I don't give participation marks just for speaking up in classroom. What I say is if you private chat message me, if you want to have a Zoom conversation with me, that counts as participation too. So once again, the fluidity now, perhaps we can figure out that it's not just participation in terms of I'm going to raise my hand and speak for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. I don't count that as participation. Yeah. There's fluidity to it. 
Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'd love to hear you talk a bit about uh, the South Asian uh, Canadian Legacy Project, and in in particular, really interested in terms of, you know, Chassis has been really focused around sort of community and innovation, and SASE has a long history of that. Could you talk a bit about that project? Oh, an incredible moment for us. On April 12th, we launched a two-year project called the South Asian Canadian Legacy Project, and there are six different pieces to this and each of those different pieces so for example a whole south asian canadian digital archive um, open school bc which is like a provincially mandated organization that creates school curriculum we've created school curriculum all the way from k to 12 based on south asian histories and and contemporary stories as well there's a traveling exhibit um, there's a social history book there's a labor history book so many different projects completed in two years this is a legacy like it is specifically a legacy not just for me in fact i may not even be the benefactor it'll be my kids it'll be my kids kids this is a model for other communities to see how they too can fix those erasures fix those you know omissions in in not just school as part of a whole entire um it's all encompassing so for example even the digital archive if you go on our digital archive website it is accessible to you for so long, archives have been a colonial archive, gatekept. Even the names, like my own community's histories, we were either erased or we were called Hindus because they didn't know who we were. Those erasures we are fixing. Martha, sometimes it takes us an hour to write one caption for a picture of a wedding, for example. What is the ceremony taking place? You know, um, why does this matter? One hour. Mm-hmm. Imagine the work, the yeah. behemoth of work. I'm so proud of this. I'm so proud that there's, you know, led this project. It's huge. Mm-hmm. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah, it looked so, you, to be honest, you couldn't, you could get the energy from the photos that were oh. there. Like you could just feel the, the yeah. energy. It, it really exciting event. And Jagmeet Singh was there. Like, yeah. It's so wicked. Like, come yeah. on. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. It was great. So what's next for that? Like what's, yeah. Yeah. So we're working on um, a promotions. Each individual project's going to have its own launch. A really cool thing we're doing at the SASE is like monthly workshops around the digital archive. So speaking of Chassis' commitment to community, what we're going to be doing is bringing in community members saying, hey, drop in do you have pictures that you've always wanted to have archived digitized um, come to the sassy we're going to do monthly workshops now we're all engaging with our stakeholders and saying let's pump this out let's mm-hmm. get our teachers to embed this in their curriculum it's a lot of work yeah, yeah. just amazing yeah thank you so given all of that can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about how we can work together i mean we naturally many of us draw together because of our, our commitment to various issues yeah. but can you talk a little bit about on a university campus such of our such as ours how can we be better supporters and 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 collaborators you know i think there's a a, a lot of buzz on campus with the different centers opening up different um dedications to the work of anti-racism and edi and inclusivity i think we need to speak more to each other. Chassis and Sassy have a great relationship and friendship. And I think that's a prime example of how other institutions and centers too can work collaboratively. What makes Chassis and Sassy a little bit different perhaps is we are community oriented. And when I say community, we aren't looking at community as a frivolous little puppet that we're going to utilize and sap knowledge from and, you know, this typical anthropological, archaeological, historical way. No. What I like is that Chassis and Sassy works as, uh, with community as empowerment. And I think through that model, we can mimic that sort of relationship building across campus. So, you know, build faculty relationships between each other, um, just like we've done with Dr. Sarah Bilyeu, right? Mm -hmm. That's a great example. I actually think we are one of the leaders on campus 
showing how um, we can speak to each other. There isn't a lot of that happening yet. I want to see more of it. I think you and Satwinder do naturally do that anyways on campus. So leadership is a huge critical role in that. The leaders have to be wanting to build those relationships, but respect community first and then build those relationships. I think what you say is is dead on, right? Mm. This this idea that in campus culture, you know, and it's not a UFE, it's a more yeah. general university issue, totally. is that, you know, we don't, that relationship with community is is off, often a lot of taking or enrollment oh, yeah. or those kinds of focus. But what does that meaningful engagement yeah. um, sort of look like? So I think there's lots of, of work to be done. Yeah, we don't need to extract from community. They, in fact, empower us. So you look at it differently and you're like, oh, wow, we learn so much from our communities. Let's value that and bring that into our campus. It's a great model. Yeah. Can you, uh, as we as we get ready to close, can you tell, you know, one of your favorite stories about the impact um, the yeah. Institute's work has had on students? Oh, my gosh. Um, I have one story. It's it's not even a UFE student. So I was giving a tour to a, um, I guess you would call it like an inner city school in Abbotsford, um, um, grade four children at the Sikh Heritage Museum, and they were all non-Sikh students. And we had finished giving the tour, and we were upstairs in the sacred space, so the Darbar Hall, and that's where it's open Q&A. Kids can ask me anything and everything under the sun. Nothing's offensive. I would rather mitigate any ignorances. And this little girl raised her hand, and she's grade four, and she goes, why do I feel so at peace in this space? And I write about that in my dissertation as well. My whole dissertation is anecdotes of stories over the course of my past two, three years of my life. That moment, like, melted me. I almost started crying. The teacher who's done tours with me, also non-sick, was, like, emotional about it. And actually, the CBC wants to cover now this story and that school, because what they recently did is mimic the the walk, carrying the lumber piece by piece from the uh, Chathui Lumber Company to the Heritage Gurdwara. This is what she did most recently. Same teacher, same grade, but this was many years ago. This little girl said this, and I was like, wow, this is what happens when you can forge spaces of belonging, not just for your own community, just a space of belonging. My favorite story. And it's such an important story right now, right? Our our desperate need for sort of sense of peace in our Mm. students and hope. Yeah. And then I'd add what you add to that mix, I think, that's so inspiring is urgency. Yes, always. Yeah. So yeah. Thanks. <laughs> let's, get, let's get it done. So thank you for that. Thank you. Is sure. there anything you'd want to particularly point listeners to in terms of accessing any of these? Yeah. yeah, I can give you all our links. You know, our social history book, for example, a brilliant collection, open access, available online, labor history book. I really encourage people and educators here at UFE. To utilize these resources. So once again, it's not just for those teaching South Asian histories. What's really cool about our resources, it's it's accessible to all historians teaching all subjects. Um, it's it's the breadth and depth of the themes in our resources. It's not about just oh, it's that South Asian community history. No, don't box it. Teach it in your courses. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. We'll look forward to it. Thanks. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you very much for your uh, for your time, uh, and it's always such a pleasure. And uh, I think your energy on campus it's it's there's been no more important time than right now for voices such as yours. Uh, so look forward to to hearing more. Well, thank you. I have to say about the energy because not everybody feels that way, but I feel the love from Chassis. And I I, uh, I did tell you this. I was truly honored and somewhat shocked when I was asked to do this podcast because I, I hold so much respect for the work Chassis is doing. So this platform means the world to me in an institution that doesn't always see me. So I really, really appreciate it, truly. Well, we'll do more of it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Martha. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>